Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and every once in a while I like to step back in front of the microphone. Occasionally I encounter a book that I find really interesting, and I call up the author and I talk to them, and that's what I'm doing today. Today we'll be talking with Daniel Paris about his new book, Getting Back to Business, Why Modern Portfolio Theory Fails Investors, and How You Can Bring Common Sense to Your Portfolio. And you might ask, why, Marshall, did this book capture your attention? Well, I have a portfolio. (laughs) That's one thing. And the other reason is I've known Dan for quite a while, and uh, he was a historian and still is a historian. And we had worked together quite closely a long time ago, and I knew that his career had taken a different direction. And he sent me a copy of the book, and I read it, and I said, you know, this is really fascinating as intellectual history, which is really what it is. It's sort of pragmatic, bare bones where the rubber meets the road, intellectual history. And it's also intellectual history that matters for millions and millions of people, because what he has is a story to tell about how something that all of us use, and trust me, you use it, called modern portfolio theory, uh, you're using it right now, and I am using it too. And it basically governs the way in which our investment instruments are being configured. Uh, And what Dan has to say about it is it's not working very well for us. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather have more money than less. So I was very interested to read what Dan, who's a very smart person, would say about this. The book is written in a style that really anyone can read. It's a book that is written by a historian, but it also is a bit like a book that might be written by a very literate business school professor, I would say. Again, the book has a narrative. It has a line. It goes all the way through it. And Dan has a story to tell. So I very much encourage you to go out and read the book as intellectual history, if you're interested in the history of modern finance, or if you're interested in Well, money. (laughs) Who is interested in money? Anyway, Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marshall. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, you you, uh, hit some of the highlights, but I I was trained as a historian, and about 20 years ago, uh, I left academia and went into business. And I find myself uh, found myself uh, working my way through the uh, kind of the thickets of, of financial research, uh, necessarily memorizing whatever the rules were of that particular business or industry just to get through, uh, to get credentialed, to, to pass the CFA Institute exam, the, uh, become a CFA charter holder, uh, to move up as an analyst uh, and then a portfolio manager and then the head of a business team. And during that process, though, I, I had to set some of my historical interests and questions, which I would normally ask, trained as a historian, uh, aside just to make it into this new career. But after a certain period of time, when I was settled into the new industry, I was uh, (laughs) unable to suppress (laughs) those questions uh, permanently. And I said, why are we doing this this way? Uh, How did this develop? And I found myself in an industry that is uh, where those questions are infrequently, if, if ever asked, the rules are the rules don't, don't, challenge them. If you have a, a tweak that uh, betters one of the rules, that's fine. But but you don't really want to ask too many questions as to where the rules came from and whether they're still broadly relevant. But as a historian, that's exactly what I found myself doing. And that led to uh, the production of, of this book and two prior ones, uh, though I remain by day a practitioner, uh, uh, oversee uh, about a $20 billion portfolio of equities. Uh, that's AUM and another uh, 15 or so uh, AUA assets under advisement. Those are technical terms, but I, I, I do manage uh, a fairly substantial portfolio by day, but by night I view myself still as a historian. I always wonder um, how somebody that manages $20 billion of other people's money can sleep at night. You sleep okay? <laughs> uh, I sleep okay. Uh, 
Uh, That's a fair question. And uh, if you were asked tomorrow to uh, manage $20 billion of people's money from a uh, standard start, you probably wouldn't. Well, but it it, it developed uh, gradually. And then I, I have to say, just kind of back to the to the first part of the, the, the conversation, uh, as a historian, it gives me great, uh, comfort and, uh, confidence in knowing what I'm yeah, doing, knowing where it came from and how it's evolved and why I'm doing what we're doing and others are doing what they're doing. It's fine. I, I feel far more confident because I took the time to go back and approach the industry in which I work as a historian. And I, I think it's a fair question to ask anyone, whether they're brain surgeons, plumbers, uh, mathematicians, uh, it, it, pizza makers. It doesn't matter if you know where that industry has come from, it probably makes you a, a better practitioner in knowing the ins and outs of how it got to its current status. And so, yeah, I, I do sleep well uh, at night, but uh, in the market reprices every day. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. It, it's hard not to uh, feel uh, up or down in regard to that. But uh, I, I am comfortable with what I do and with the client assets that are entrusted to us. Well, I'm... I'm, I'm um... I'm grateful for the work you do, and I'm sure all the people that you work for are. Uh, so it's, it's 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 a pretty awesome responsibility. So let's get right into the book. The introduction of the book is called "The Need for Rules," and you have uh, some interesting things to say about uh, humans' needs for rules. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think this is you know common for many people who are listening uh, in this uh, setting of the New Books Network for you know uh, people with an academic orientation or a reading orientation that they're familiar that you know societies are simply set up uh, to have sets of rules that everyone can more or less not exactly but more or less agree upon otherwise you have chaos and uh, you uh, you come to these uh, these rules whether you call it society or culture or religion politics economics they're uh, 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 evolving. They're not set in stone, but they are an evolving set of rules that everyone basically agrees on. And that's how society functions. Uh, and it turns out that, uh, you know, people are very, very comfortable with those rules. Otherwise they wouldn't have them. And they extend even to, uh, places or, or activities such as investment. And it, it gives people comfort that a set of rules exists when they approach their 401k, when they approach their financial advisor, when they approach the stock market, when they approach their brokerage and their broker and the rules that are presented to them, when they are told the rules of asset allocation, of diversification, it is, uh, uh, I think, a matter of great psychological comfort that there are rules out there. Otherwise, people would feel, I think, uh, so intimidated they might not participate. And uh, it's, it's been that way uh, for as far back as the period that I was looking at the investment world, people, once stocks became popularly available and accessible in the late 19th and early 20th century in this country, people were looking for guidance for a set of rules. And uh, modern portfolio theory, which is what this book is about, filled that need really, really well because it's a very precise set of rules. My issue, and the one we'll get to, is that while it is a very nice set of laid out, easy to understand rules, doesn't make them right. It's not that MPT, which is modern portfolio theory. It's not that MPT is 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 uh, um, that uh, it's the best uh, set of rules. It was the set of rules that came into being, but it doesn't make it uh, actually correct. And that's the basic argument of the book. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get into it. You mentioned the word chaos, and you use that word to describe what things were like uh, before the great. Uh, crash. So could you talk a little bit about the evolution of stocks and stock trading and how people became involved in it and what was known about it and how it was done? Because it's a pretty wild story. I have to say, when I read it, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 as a historian, this is the kind of the fun part of the tale. Uh, there really weren't too, met, too much in the way of uh, comprehensive set of rules prior to the crash. And maybe that's one of the reasons we got into the crash. Now, the history of markets of things looking like equity stocks, ownership stakes, publicly traded ownership stakes, uh, go back uh, many centuries. And mutual funds uh, had a start in in Europe in the uh, 17th and 18th century in England and the Netherlands and so forth. Uh, 
so th- there is a, a, a prehistory here, but in terms of what we consider the modern stock market and, and the financial services industry, you really need a, a broad-based uh, population that wants to participate in this and has the ability to it and, and has the wealth that's available. And that characterizes the late 19th and early 20th century in the United States and to some extent England as well. Uh, but as the ability to invest in stocks, companies raising money to build railroads and canals and then industrial plant in the 19th uh, and 20th centuries, uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, that occurs. It's wild and woolly. It is to use a different metaphor it's the it's the uh, the wild west there are no rules you hang your shingle out you carry your gun and you hope for the best and there was no guidance other than an innate sense of speculation that most people who have some money and are willing to give it to someone else have have a pretty good uh, understanding of but beyond that innate sense of speculation there were no rules as to hmm we should have some small caps and large caps hmm we should uh, measure this company based on its uh, growth rate or against the its balance sheet. There was no systematic treatment of how you would judge an investment or how you might participate in the stock market. It was to the extent there was any set of activities or procedures, it was purely speculation. You wanted to buy low, sell high, repeat frequently, and hope that someone <laughs> and hope that someone did not uh, rip you off process. Um, So uh, stocks were viewed as purely speculative. Bonds, bonds in railroads and bonds in canals and uh, bonds from banks were viewed a couple steps higher and there was a greater degree of trust that you would actually get paid back. There were legal remedies if you were not paid back from the bonds and so forth. But it it, it was a ruleless um, chaotic environment. And the book uh, is filled, chapter one, is filled with all sorts of stories of uh, highlighting that it was a wild adventure. Now, uh, fast forward 100 years, there's a lot of regulations. You still find you know, the Lehman Brothers uh, and Enrons of this world and lots of minor stories in, uh, of, of uh, that tenor. But uh, the entire market consisted of stories of that tenor uh, 100, 150 years ago. Uh-huh. Well, I kind of had this became a cliche in American culture, and that is the hot tip. The hot tip. It comes yeah. from this area, doesn't it? The hot tip. I got the hot tip. Yeah, and you, <laughs> you know, you're the shoeshine boy. When your shoeshine exactly, boy is giving yeah. you stock tips, it's probably uh, time to find something else to do with your money. Uh, it, you know, it's very democratic. It was very democratic. <laughs> uh, it was very open. I think it's very, uh, uh, you know, it, and an important point is that it's very easy to criticize. But the fact is those railroads got built. Yeah, they did. Capital was raised. Plants were were built. There may have been some wastage. Uh, remember, industrialization that occurred with private capital in this country contrasts with industrialization that occurred with government or quasi-government capital in other instances. And frankly, uh, this private capital raising exercise worked really well. And broadly speaking, it still works pretty well. Uh, and the, the, uh, the fact that there were no set of academically blessed, canonical, regulated rules is is notable you know the, we we got through industrialization nevertheless despite the rules and i think that's kind of ends up uh having an influence on how you might judge the set of rules that did emerge the modern portfolio theory so the capital got raised but there was a lot of uh you know i'm sure a, a lot of wastage a lot of uh, uh people who who might have been on the wrong side of a trade but uh this rickety system uh worked despite the absence of an academic template as to how it should work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then in uh, 1929, a lot of people, including mom and pop, if they were involved in the stock market, got burnt pretty badly. And this, yeah. And, and this, yeah, is, this is as a historian where I, you know, I'm making an assertion. It could be wrong, could be right. But the, the basic narrative is correct. The uh, modern portfolio theory and the way that we all invest today has its roots in the 1950s and 60s. My assertion as a historian is actually they're just responding to 1929. And you can go back and, and they wouldn't necessarily say the key figures wouldn't necessarily say that they're responding to 1929. But if you look back to what they're responding to, they're responding to people who are responding to or people who are responding to. And it all comes back to 1929, the 1920s. And so the big Big Bang set the Big Bang. The, um, the the Great Crash sets into motion a series of events that sets up the basis for a bunch of academics in the 1950s and 60s to lay out the rules for investing that we all have to contend with now. And it was because uh, although the market was far more cyclical, the economy and the market were far more cyclical 
then than they are now. Uh, you know, we talk about recessions, mild recessions. Remember, in the 1870s, 1890s, 1929, we had depressions, and there was no Chapter 11. It was Chapter 7 of the Bankruptcy Code, which is dissolution of the business immediately. There was Ouch. no Bankruptcy Code at that point. So there's no slow reorganization. It is a dissolution. So the economics ups, economic ups and downs were, were much more severe, and it really got people's attention. Uh, and 1929 was uh, the second Great Depression because there had been an earlier one in the late 19th century. But uh, this one got everyone's attention. The stock market had run up dramatically in the 1920s, and then it crashed. And as a consequence, both government authorities, academics, and practitioners all really did um, independently, uh, but in, almost in a joint effort over time, come up with a set of rules and a framework for operations. Uh, the SEC regulations date from the, the early and mid-1930s. Uh, if you have a mutual fund, it technically and legally by the SEC is called a 40-act company, and that is a shorthand reference to the huh. 1940 Act yeah. Yeah. that regulated those entities. Huh. So uh, SEC itself was created uh, in 1934. So the um, uh, uh, the government got involved. A number of academics and practitioners got involved in the 1930s. I highlight three of them because uh, the, they are the three that are referenced the most today and I think had the most uh, significant mm -hmm. impact. One is Benjamin Graham, whom everyone will have heard of at least a little bit. Uh, the other is John Burr Williams, whom no one will have heard of, but did some important <laughs> things. And in between is John Maynard Keynes, who everyone will have heard of, but for other reasons. But he contributes a slim chapter in his uh, famous uh, book, The General Theory Chapter, 12, which is uh, critical to how uh, modern investing works. So the three of them uh, did their work in the 1930s, and I call them the founding fathers. They're really not. The people who created modern portfolio theory or in the 50s and 60s, but without the work done by these founding fathers in the 1930s, it, it's unlikely that they would have uh, responded the way they did in the 50s and 60s. It's still not a system. The uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, John Burr Williams, and uh, Benjamin Graham are doing initially damage control, cleanup, disaster mitigation, uh, trying to lay out some individual rules, not a systematic system, a system of investment, but saying, here are some basic concepts that you should think about. They were not in agreement with one another. They uh, not necessarily in correspondence with one another. Uh, but that was the framework then that the individuals in the post-war period have to work with as they try to, in a calmer period after the depression, after the war, after the post-war period of recovery in the 1950s and 60s, sort of calmer periods of economic growth where the academics could then say, okay, let's systematically think about this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And could you describe very briefly what they said they were trying to mitigate risk for investors or what was the brunt of their work? John Burr Williams is trying to figure out what the value of a security is. Again, in the ruleless period, the value of a security is what somebody paid for. That's It's not much more than that. And he comes up with what many of you will know as a discounted cash flow analysis or have heard of it, a DCF. Uh, if you're thinking about how your mortgage operates for your house or how the pizza franchise down the street works or a royalty on an oil well, it's a discounted cash flow exercise. And the... Uh, the theory behind a discounted cash flow exercise uh, had been worked out in great deta detail by John Williams in 1938. There were other individuals, both academic and non-academic and mathematicians, who had done work similar to it, but not specifically applied to finance in, in uh, prior decades and centuries. But John Burr Williams puts it all on paper as to how you value a business. Uh, Benjamin Graham in his famous book, Security Analysis, says, listen, I'm going to assume nothing. I mean, because basically people in the 1920s clearly were assuming nothing. Ben Graham had been <laughs> operating, operating in the markets for several decades. And he, he said, listen, here's what a balance sheet is. Here's what an income statement is. They didn't have cash flow statements at the time. Here's what an accounts receivable is. Here's what a depreciation account is. Depreciation matters a lot. Again, if you own a house, you should understand what depreciation is. If you don't, ask your accountant. Uh, he said, here's, here's uh, how a issue or a stock that, you know, should be approached. Here's how you consider it. What are its business process? You and I might think that 
in a period in which the financial media is ever present, most people know a little bit about what a stock is and what, uh, how you might think about it, for better or for worse. You may have a view on Tesla. You may not have a view on Tesla, a view on Amazon, uh, uh, not a view on Amazon, a view on, on uh, Kellogg uh, uh, or on General Mills. But Ben Graham assumes that you have zero knowledge, that you just got off the, the train and have arrived in New York City and are investing and you know absolutely nothing. And so he explains what all the different types of securities are. There used to be uh, preferred securities were very popular as they're somewhere between bonds and equities. Uh, and he, he just goes through and provides a starting guide, but very wise to how you would uh, approach the stock market. And uh, finally, uh, John uh, John Maynard Keynes in his chapter in the general theory deals with the issue of kind of subjective perception. The problem with the stock market from his perspective, and an important one to this day, is that we're dealing with subjective perceptions. Is this company going to grow? Is someone going to pay more for it? What's the future income stream going to be? The future income stream would interest John uh, Burr Williams, the, the what someone's going to pay for it would, would interest Benjamin Graham. Uh, uh, Keynes takes up this issue of, well, what are people thinking about the future? And what do they think that someone else, a different market participant or other market participants is going to uh, feel about the future? And is everyone confident? Is If the market's going up, more people will be confident than they'll bid up the market even further. If people are, there are feedback loops. If people are not confident, then it's going to continue to go down. So he provided some analysis of the psychological element necessary for market participants. So again, these, these three uh, foundations are still relevant today, but they don't make up modern portfolio theory. They simply make up what people were beginning the first steps of systematically thinking about the stock market in the 1930s. And that lays the foundation for what happens in the post-war period. Mm-hmm. So then we come to the protagonist of the story, and that is uh, Harry Markowitz, one Harry Markowitz. He's an interesting character um, <laughs> with a funny story. So uh, could you Talk about him and how he did he found modern portfolio theory? I guess he did, didn't he? Yeah, and and it's a bit of an accident. I mean, he he was looking for a uh, topic and he met somebody, a stockbroker outside of his uh, thesis advisor's uh, office waiting also. And so he chatted with him. And uh, if you Harry Markowitz becomes a very interesting and, and kind of uh, benevolent person in this story. He comes up with a system. The system, I think, gets, gets out of hand and is beyond his control and is, is used poorly by people other than Harry Markowitz. But Harry Markowitz, again and again, writes very, very wise things. And I, I kind of started out, I have to admit, with a bit of a bias against him. And I, I clearly ended up with a, uh, a great admiration. As we sit today in uh, mid-2000, uh, 2018. Harry Markowitz is still alive. He lives in Southern California. He's in his 90s, and I wish I wish him well. And he, the accolades that he received, including uh, Nobel Prize, are uh, well deserved. He did uh, some innovative work, but there is a degree of kind of I won't call it accident, but unintentionality associated with it. He was looking for a thesis, um, and uh, someone suggested the stock market. Uh, in his work in the 50s and 60s, he's very interested in uh, linear programming, and he has a lot of achievements concerning linear programming. Uh, he's very interested in optimization uh, of processes. He worked for the government, for the RAND Institution, uh, to uh, uh, optimize processes, uh, along with uh, uh, Bill Sharp, who is another character who will show up. And one senses in some of his comments and reading uh, writings that he really, really enjoyed the optimization and the programming. And that, you know, and that's that, and that he was very, very good at it. And that, um, this application of, of linear programming and optimization to the financial markets is one of many applications that could be made. And that, uh, uh, one sense is, and I'm not going to speak for him, but that, that the, that optimization exercise in linear programming was what he really was interested in and the application to the financial markets was very important and nice, but it, it wasn't the primary thing. Nevertheless, the application of that programming and his sensibility to the financial markets changed how everyone invests. Uh, he comes up with a very simple way 
to uh, quantify the continuum of risk and reward, which most people intuitively understand that that you, in order for greater reward, you have to take greater risk. But prior to Harry Markowitz, that is not quantified. It's not mathematical. It's not put forward in a way that investors could use. And that's where he deserves tremendous credit. And the, the second element of that risk and reward that he introduced is in defining the risk uh, is through diversification, that that the way that you could maximize your return and manage where you are on the spectrum between risk and reward is through diversification. And so he elevates diversification to um, really the way that you would manage where you want to be on that spectrum. Prior to that, Diversification is not very popular. Um, if you have a good horse, you want to put all your money on it. That was the type of mentality of the 1920s. And uh, he said, no, that doesn't make a lot of sense here. Uh, investors want stability. They want uh, an expected return. And they want minimal variance from that expected return. And the way they can do that is through diversification very wise statements uh, then and now. And uh, for in a 1952 article in the Journal of Finance, he becomes the first person to set that out that way and creates a nice curve uh, showing uh, various levels of risk and reward. He fleshes it out in a book in 1959. Uh, Not much application of these ideas at that time, but he gets uh, gets full credit for um, articulating a system whereby investors would define as their goal a certain expected return. And the best that the way that they could handle that is to have a bunch of assets that have uh, what's lower, what's called covariance to one another. They don't move together. Uh, and that you would have kind of an average expected or median expected return from the assets and as a small a variance around that expected return as possible. That in a nutshell is, is uh, modern portfolio theory. Uh, it seems rather technical. It actually isn't when you, you think about it in general terms from your portfolio. You have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, it defines where you are on the risk spectrum and your expected return. It's exactly when you walk into a financial advisor's office uh, today, or even if you go online and they ask you some questions, it's basically trying to fit where you would like to be on the risk return spectrum. That whole notion was created by Harry Markowitz and he deserves full credit. Mm -hmm. So essentially what this does is it, in addition to the kind of psychological effect, which we'll talk about later, we've already touched on it, is it reduces risk giving, given certain um, stipulated goals. You begin with the goal and then you say, well, okay, we're going to meet that goal. How best can we reduce risk in achieving that goal? Or the exact other way around that is you can say, this is this is the risk that I want. This is the, I can't sleep at night if my assets jump around yes. by a certain amount. So I want no more or no less than this risk. Whatever the outcome will be, the expected return, I'll, I'll take it. But I want to I define see. the risk. And if I define a certain level of risk, I'm going to get a certain expected level of return. If mm-hmm. I define a certain level of expected return, I have to put up with whatever the associated level of risk is. So if I want to shoot for the fences, you have to be prepared for the ups and downs of Facebook and Tesla. If you're uh, interested just in the 3% return, then you can own a bunch of bonds and very low volatility stocks and you'll get a low return, uh, but you also have very low volatility. So I it can go on either direction. I guess the kind of astounding thing to me is, as somebody that knows a little bit about the stock market, and uh, you know, I have a four hundred one k and other instruments, is that that this nobody had thought of this before Markowitz. I guess it had been kind of captured in adages, and you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, and nothing ventured, nothing gained. And you see what I'm saying? You're, you're like, absolutely it, correct. It's and, all kind of there. <laughs> yeah, they, in the adage level, it is there. And the difference is that by the 1950s, the wave of quantification of human behavior has reached a, a significant threshold and a, a critical mass. And in the, you know, to talk about investing in the mid-19th or even late 19th century and try to quantify it, there simply are no tools available for that. But by the 1950s, um, society is just caught up in a wave of quantification. You have computers, early generation computers can do it. You have data sets that can do it. And uh, the ability to quantify finance uh, makes – gives the people – 
who want to quantify things, the ability to apply it to pretty much any activity level. You could quantify poetry. Uh, you could provide algorithms that generate yeah. poetry, and people have. And you need computing power to do that and a database of, of words to do that. Well, finally, in uh, you know in the 1950s and 60s in particular, the, the ability to, to make those adages into mathematical formulas was not only available, it's incredibly popular in academia. The notion that you must quantify for it to be real really takes over and becomes predominant. And it is drawn from our friends, the physicists and the hard scientists. The hard scientists, but specifically the physicists, had really uh, were in the lead in the late 19th and early 20th centuries about figuring out the underlying rules of the universe. And those underlying rules of the universe were uh, expressed in mathematical formulas. And then in the early 20th and mid 20th centuries, the social scientists begin to catch on and say, hey, we're going to do the same thing. It has a certain uh, patina of, of, of credibility. If we can express it as a numerical formula, it must be true. And so all, uh, I won't, maybe not all, but Substantial portions of human activity become uh, quantified, uh, rules-based, and finance was a very natural one for that to happen as well. So to tell, you know, Andrew Carnegie, like, uh, put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket, or uh, the Merchant of Venice, who goes the other way and argues uh, diversification, both of those are non-quantified uh, recommendations. Here in Markowitz, you have it, ex and in his heirs, you have it expressed as a formula at that time. Having it expressed in a formula gave it much, much greater credibility than the adage level. And I'm not going to mm -hmm. dispute, and I, I do acknowledge this book can come off as being anti-quantification. The argument is not anti-quantification. It's simply that the belief in quantification went too far. The pendulum swung too far. And you only need to look outside your window into your brokerage account to realize that the rules that you were taught in terms of how the financial markets or most of the rest of the society function aren't as precise as those rules pretend to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's also an interesting historical moment here in terms of the production of data because I know a guy who does quant analysis and he made a lot of money doing it and he was describing what he did and he said, you know, we have a database, he just said in a kind of offhanded way, of every transaction on the New York Stock Exchange back to 1950-something. And we, you know, updates um, – Every day, we, it updates every 30 seconds, actually. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's so, just an, an incredible amount of data. Yeah, and you just said but, it like, well, everybody has this, right? <laughs> you don't have that? <laughs> I only, I, I, I must not pay as much because I only have everything back to 1962 uh, available yeah, to me. Go, so I, was, I, 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 you know. I don't have the premium package. Um, yeah. The, the, uh, quant the, uh, the material that you read, prior to the crash and through the 1950s is uh, impressionistic. There is no data to work with. Uh, the CALS Commission uh, comes up with uh, returns and share price data database that's still housed at the University of Chicago. They go back to the 18, uh, 1870. Uh, that was an enormous task at the time. This was done in the 1930s. And uh, uh, in the post-war period, you begin to get more and more data uh, sponsored by Merrill Lynch and again, uh, housed at the University of Chicago until you begin to get data sets that allow you to, to analyze uh, share prices and transactions. Um, and it, again, I, one of the points that I make in the book is that uh, you know if you have a lot of data, you come up with a theory that's driven by the data and uh, you, you have people interested in the data. And one of my, that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But one of my observations is that the data is not about company ownership. The data is about share prices. And you end mm -hmm. up getting a theory of share prices uh, rather than a theory of business ownership in the stock market. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, it's just bears pointing out. Yeah, that's worth. That's actually worth pausing and talking about a bit. The difference between those two theories—that is, a theory of share prices and the movement of those prices on markets—and a theory of what was the word you used exactly? Business ownership. Business ownership. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because it's very important for the book. Yeah, the the book really the, the book is not mathematical. The book is philosophical. If you like, you as an individual like the stock market, you like to buy low, sell high, repeat frequently. You will find little, if anything, of interest to you in the book. Do not do not buy it. Return it if you can. Put it away. You won't like it. Uh, modern portfolio theory and a substantial level of practice in the stock market is about share prices, not business ownership. The argument that I make in the book 
is that bottom portfolio theory as it evolved and as it is practiced by many people leans in that direction and that there's a reason why because in the 1950s and 60s people with databases of share prices and academics interested in linear programming were in charge of this exercise and came up with this exercise uh, there is an alternative approach it is business ownership and it is not something that is new business ownership is practiced outside of the stock market by everyone who owns a business works in a business uh, has a more mortgage, rides the bus. I mean, everything is business related. Uh, everything there's a, every, you know, commercial interaction that we have is cash flow related. And, uh, um, Curiously, the stock market has a sort of a buy or a, an excuse not to act in a business-like fashion. Instead, it's all about the share prices. So the, the polemical portion of the, of the book is to argue people should own businesses, not stocks. And by the way, that's very much in line with Ben Graham, uh, who over and over again says, stop looking at the stock market and just focus on the condition of the businesses. Uh, but by the 1960s and 70s, uh, the stock the stocks are in the forefront and the businesses are in the background. It doesn't really matter what the businesses do because all the those databases that you were referencing earlier are about their share performance since then. And we'll get to this a little bit later about factor analysis of, of stock market movements. It literally doesn't matter what the business is about. It's only about the factor or the characterization of the stock, what's driving it and so forth. And so the businesses have been lost in modern stock market investment. And uh, my big polemical point in Hence the title of the book, Getting Back to Business, is that it would not hurt if people actually knew what the companies that they own did and what their business conditions were. Now, that, while you might think is a not particularly controversial point, uh, in fact, it is controversial. I got a uh, uh, email from an academic, one I think very highly of, who, who wrote to me after seeing the book, said, I don't own businesses. I own stocks. I don't really care about the businesses per se. And uh, this individual owns a mutual fund that has 3,600 different stocks in it, which means it's the whole market, which means they, they're not drawing any distinction between any of the different businesses that are in there. And that is a philosophical choice. You can own stocks or you can own businesses. If you're going to own stocks and only care about how they move red and green during, on the screen during a the day, then modern portfolio theory is um, a mechanism of uh, managing it. If you're going to own businesses, however, modern portfolio theory is not very good at all for um, for trying to manage those those businesses, the ownership of businesses. So it, it becomes a philosophical difference, not necessarily a, uh, a technical one. I, I do expect a lot of academics and stock market junkies to uh, not have a, you know, not warmly receive this book because it really is just very much at odds with the first principles of them. They, they like the stock market and there's nothing wrong with liking the stock market. There's nothing wrong with speculating in stocks. There's nothing wrong with uh, buy low, sell high, repeat frequently. There's, uh, but it, it is different as an art than the long-term art of business ownership. Um, mm -hmm. You can own businesses uh, that don't make distributions. It's a point I make later. And you can, you know, operate in the stock market um, for short periods of time, that is what some might call speculation, uh, and still care about the businesses as such. But as a general notion, most of modern portfolio theory encourages individuals to, to really not think about the underlying businesses and instead to just focus on the stocks. And I think that is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we need to introduce a couple of terms here or concepts because they're important to the book. Um, one of them, just to start kind of anecdotally, is that everybody understands what a loan is. And if you loan somebody money, in our culture at least, it's different in different cultures, we expect to be paid back the principal on the loan that we get all the money back and then some, and we call that interest because we forewent. Is that what you say? For we have no, foregone. Yes, foregone. Yes. I don't know how that works. Um, we have foregone the use of that money and we have allowed someone else to use it for a certain amount of time. And so we are uh, paid uh, in proportion to that little bit of suffering. And again, that's good for us cost. and good for the person. Opportunity cost is what we call that. That's right. And one of the things you pointed out in the book and then pointed out in your other books is that uh, this uh, 
paradigm, if you can call it that, or way of seeing this relationship kind of recapitulates across lots of our interactions, including our business interactions. You go to McDonald's, you get a hamburger uh, from the people at McDonald's and you pay for it, right? Just like that. And then in, ter- in, in turn, if you invest in McDonald's, you give McDonald's some money, they build some more McDonald's, and then they give you some of your money back. But the thing that's interesting, I think, from the point of view of your book and also from the point of view of many uh, uh, people that hold certain stocks is that that second part, that is a dividend that you're paid regularly for that little bit of suffering that you did by not using your money, is um, absent from the equation. There isn't any cash flow to you as an investor, and your return is supposedly all in terms of equity growth, that is the price of the stock that you bought. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because um, it is, it's to me, it's almost counterintuitive that a company wouldn't give a dividend. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem fair to me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're, you're spot on concerning sort of the polemics here, that I make an argument that all businesses outside of the U.S. stock market are in one form or another substantially cash flow based, whether it's the plumber, McDonald's, whatever the case may be. Uh, basically, all bus- uh, and, and most public equity markets outside of the United States uh, also are cash flow based. That is, you provide your capital. They, uh, in addition to repricing your asset, they uh, provide an income stream back. Uh, fixed income, that is loans, are, are structured that way. Uh, the local pizzeria, your plumber, uh, the the oil well, you know, everyone works for cash in in this world. Uh, the uh, the only exception that has uh, come to prominence in the last few decades is the uh, U.S. stock market, where you provide capital to others, and instead of getting a share of the proceeds, you simply have the the share price. Now, there's nothing yeah, inherently it's just bizarre. I'm sorry, yeah, it's, just, yeah, it's, it's strange. It's, it's strange. It, it's weird. It's weird. It is unusual. It is anomalous. It's been going on for three decades. Um, it's worked very well, by the way, for raising capital, uh, probably too much capital in some regards. Uh, there was a lot wasted in the 1990s, uh, uh, the first tech bubble. But uh, people are willing to do it. Uh, and there's a, you know, a lot of fi- in, in the late 19th century, a lot of railroads were built. In the late 20th century, a lot of uh, fiber cable was, was laid, fiber optic cable. Uh, so it, it is anomalous, uh, but most businesses eventually expect a cash flow repayment. Uh, that is, you, once the company is invested in the business and it's up and running, most investments work where you get a share of the, the the proceeds afterwards, and it's not just a matter of the share price of the enterprise. The U.S. stock market, specifically Nasdaq, has gone in a different direction. Again, it's not morally or ethically wrong; it's just very anomalous. And my argument in the book is that, again, it's uh, using the idea of a, a pendulum. Is the pendulum has swung too far away? from standard business practices the world over in the private sector and in other equity markets. And it's time to just bring the pendulum back and successful businesses in the U.S. stock market. It is not unreasonable to expect them to pay a dividend and to share a good portion of their profits uh, after investments with company owners. That expectation, again, is standard in the private sector, standard in other public equity markets, and is anathema, heretical, uh, in, in, in Silicon Valley. Now, again, Silicon Valley has been very, very successful, not giving a penny back to shareholders. So that's, that's good. I, I, uh, don't dispute that. I still would argue, however, that you could have built an Apple, Facebook and Amazon, uh, by paying dividends just as readily as not paying dividends. Uh, but that is a minority view again, right now, modern portfolio theory, uh, is very indifferent towards dividend payments from stocks. It's all about the share price and they, uh, therefore dividends have fallen into the, into the, uh, uh, background and are, are not viewed as a prominent, prominent part of the investment equation. I think that that uh, is uh, unfortunate and is going to change over the next couple of decades. Okay. So how does the failure of an Apple or they don't give dividends, right? No dividend from Apple. Apple, Apple, Apple to the credit, Apple and Intel um, do pay dividends. Oh, the yields are not very high, but they do pay dividends. The, the, you know, the Facebooks and Googles of this world uh, and Amazons do not. Okay. Let's just take them for a second. So how are investors hurt by the fact that these companies don't give, well, let's put it differently. How are investors hurt generally by modern portfolio theory and the adherence there too? Uh, 
the adherence there too, I believe, diminishes potential returns for investors because they are discouraged to looking at the businesses and encouraged to just focus on the share prices. And that rather than holding their businesses to business standards, they're simply caught up in the share price. Uh, mean variance optimization, which is the statistical term for what modern portfolio theory is, or you're trying to forecast expected returns, share price based and variance of expected returns and put together a portfolio that gets you a good combination of said return and, and variance is uh, Simply the same, not the same as uh, as as owning businesses, and I think that the returns as a consequence are diminished. Now, the de- average returns that investors have received is a, a debatable point. There is one kind of very famous study out there called the Dalbar study that looks at returns of individual investors, and because individual investors are looking at the share prices and not following the businesses and are trading way too frequently and getting in and out, their returns are terrible, just a few percent a year for a market that goes up nine to 10% a year. Mm. And so uh, to my mind, modern portfolio theory is kind of complicit in low investor returns by focusing just on the share prices and, and, and not the businesses. But it's not the, it's not the individuals like me. I'm not a financial guy. Um, it's the person that invests my money who's using modern portfolio theory. So really the, the, the advice that you give is most um, important for them, Relevant isn't to, it? Yeah, to the yes. people that actually yeah, manage the, my the, money. Yeah, the audience is for, uh, the audience for a book like this is financial advisors, and those who do it themselves but have enough uh, are are sufficiently deep into it to have uh, rubbed up against the. Uh, standard approaches of MPT or asset allocation and, um, uh, you know, the style boxes and so forth and factor analysis. So th- that that's the target audience uh, for this is to say, ho, oh, are these rules actually, you know, are these rules which are blessed by the regulatory authorities, by the way, that's an important thing. Yeah, MPT became blessed specifically in 1974, but, but more specifically over the last few decades have become blessed by the regulatory and self-regulatory authorities. So it's really hard to go against them. And uh, the, that makes advocating for a back-to-business approach uh, harder. But yes, the target audience is, is really uh, uh, the, the financial advisors. Now, you asked an earlier question about you know, how does a, a share price-only, non-dividend-paying, non-distributive business, which is so unusual in the outside world, why is that actually bad? Well, interestingly, for the past couple decades, it hasn't been bad. Yeah. Because the market's gone way, way up. Now, people get in and out at the wrong time. So there are very few people who held Amazon stock from day one and therefore have benefited from Amazon's tremendous run. But had you held it from day one, you'd been very successful. But uh, in a rising stock market, a investment system based strictly on share prices is going to look pretty good. Why wouldn't it? Everyone feels better. Every quarter they look at their uh, their statement and it's gone up. They have not gotten a check. They can't really tell the true condition of their business. Is their business in a position to actually make a, distribution, a, a, a distribution to the company owners the way every other business in the world is judged? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Tesla could be or could not be, but who knows? Right. Uh, but uh, as long as the price goes up, very few people care. So – Modern portfolio theory and a share price based system as opposed to a cash flow based system has looked pretty good the last couple decades. Now, there was the internet bubble. Yeah, I was going to mention that because there you saw, I was, I'm sorry to interrupt because there you saw, I, mean, I remember I was in Washington, D.C. working at the time and for some reason we were covering these things and I don't, I was working in a magazine and e- even people that didn't follow finance understood that valuations of some of these companies were just incredible that had produced, <laughs> not only had they produced nothing tangible because they're internet companies and internet companies don't really produce anything tangible, but they they made no money and had no prospect of making money as far as anybody could see. Yet these valuations were incredible. So it was kind of like, uh, you know, one wants to start talking about tulips and things. Indeed. And modern portfolio theory's answer to the internet bubble was yes. Meaning that 
If you have stocks available, you want to diversify into these tech stocks because that part of the market and uh, the share price movements have certain covariances to one another, certain standard deviation. It's all part of the mix. And you don't want to look too far under the cover and uh, under the hood and say, is there a reliable business under here? Because it has share price. It has liquidity. There's a trades every day. It has the, the numbers. It has the covariances and the variances. Therefore, it's fine. And modern portfolio theory said, let's diversify. We'll include all those tech stocks into our portfolio because they're a new asset class. It's a new and booming part of the economy. It's going to add growth to your portfolio expectation, et cetera. There was no critical distinction there. And that, right, but at again, that point, it's, it's, it's like the blind leading. The, I'm sorry, but it's like the blind leading the blind at that point. It really is like getting a stock tip from your shoeshine boy because you know it just is trading for a lot. So you need to buy it because it's trading for a lot and it's rising. And again, well, I was going to say when when you know the tide is lifting all boats, that that works really well. But the tide sometimes goes out, <laughs> and the tide, tide goes out. But if you're if you're really only interested in a theory of numbers, not a theory of business ownership, then you don't. You, the, the internet stocks were fine in that sense, yeah. and uh, because they were stocks and they were part of the the universe, part of the investable universe. Therefore, you should own right. some of them, some of them, and and again, it's a good example of of. Um, the difference between businesses and owning stocks. You had another drawdown of the financial crisis. It wasn't um, non-dividend related. In fact, the banks at the center of the financial crisis generally did pay their dividends. So simply because a business behaves like a business doesn't mean that it's a healthy business. Uh, it, uh, you know, companies uh, can run out of money, uh, even if they're making, uh, even if they had it at some point. So I'm not making some sort of universal claim, but, uh, uh, you know, the other than those two, you know, those two big crises over the past 25 years, 20 years, this, it's been a, a you know, a, a rising market for, for many decades. And um, uh, people think the share price system works just fine. And, you know, for people who are interested in share prices, it, it has worked just fine. If they were able to navigate 1999, 2000, 2001, and if they were to navigate the great financial crisis, then uh, we really have, uh, it, it, there's no reason not to continue to focus on share prices. Mm -hmm. Again, it's more not a black and white argument from my perspective, but a pendulum argument that um, it can't hurt, particularly when times appear to be so good when uh, everything appears to be going fine to have a gut check and say, hmm, let's let's look at things now. Are we behaving in a rational fashion now? Now, you can have the conversation right now about biotechs that are, are very uh, volatile. Some of them are, uh, you know, on the verge of miraculous discoveries. Uh, social media companies are either going to be very, very successful or, 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 or the opposite. And so there's always something that is shall we say, stock market-like, which could benefit from uh, a very d good due diligence business analysis. And I just don't think that, um, that enough of that is done in the stock market these days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what, what should financial advisors be looking at if they wanted to get back to business? Are there key indicators that are reasonably simple to use to judge the, the health of a company and its prospects. So this is where, uh, you know, it's easy to throw stones. Uh, the question becomes, okay, right. what do you, what do you, what do you do? What's your response? Uh, what's your better system? MPT has been around for 50 years. It actually works pretty well. So you better come up with something that's a lot better. Uh, if, if you have any chance of getting accepted. And I, I understand that challenge and my, you know, two thirds of the book is, is history. And then there's a critique of modern portfolio theory. Then chapter five is a suggested alternative. My, my wager is on pointing out the history of this paradigm because I don't think anyone is aware of it. Very, very few people. I operate in an industry that where there's a very limited, if any, historical sensibility. I think it's critical that even people who want to stay within the current framework, that they at least know where they came from. Uh, practitioners should know the history of their art. And so I, I really am very uh, proud and kind of uh, consider the most important part of the book, the history part, pointing out the context, not the resolution of all the world deals, but the actual specific context in which modern portfolio theory emerged in the 1950s and 60s, why it may or may not. And there's a lot of may not be relevant for current investors. A lot of the book is spent on that. But at the end of the day, I have to come up with an alternative. Uh, I am, uh, I, I argue for a business-like alternative. And uh, I think that that alternative probably is not going to be widely accepted, but it doesn't matter 
It there just needs to be an alternative. It doesn't need to be my alternative. The let's focus just on the share prices to figure out some 1950s and 60s problems doesn't work anymore. Investor returns are terrible. You get these periodic crises. So it's time for a new approach. My proposal for that new approach is to build a portfolio theory, a measurement system, a portfolio construction approach based on standard business practices uh, that are used in other equity markets and are used in private business the world over. There will be others who will disagree with that. That is fine. I am arguing that my historical approach, I think, is is hard to dispute. I, I'm not really making the same claims per se for my specific solution to the problem, but we have to start talking about a solution to the problem. Mine is hiding in cl- present view, clear view, right in the middle. Uh, and it's it's applying the standards of cash flow based business analysis when you can create your portfolios. That is, is a business successful enough to make a profit distribution, just like any other private business in the world? Is the profit distribution growing? Is it sustainable? What is the balance sheet of the institution look like? What are the growth prospects for the industry? Now, many stock market participants will say they do this already, and that's true, but they don't go to the cash flow distribution part of the equation. I'm advocating that. Uh, Interestingly, putting together a portfolio of assets, bonds, stocks, real estate, private businesses, and measuring it by the cash flows that are distributable to the owners of the businesses and hopefully getting good growth and having some degree of diversification so that you have some protection, that's that's hiding in plain sight. That's not that that difficult. The Mm -hmm. The more interesting part, I think, and one of the interesting parts is that what do you do with all those non-dividend paying stocks? You know, where do they fit in? And this was sort of a struggle for me as I was working through chapter five, because intellectually, I am somewhat dismissive of that group. But uh, as a practical matter, they're out there and they serve a key psychological role. And this is where, again, modern portfolio theory, which draws on rational actor theory, uh, comes up short. And here's a, a, a nod to the behavioral finance people who have spent the last couple days, this is the uh, last couple decades, this is from the kind of the 80s and 90s and aughts, uh, saying, hey, people don't behave the way uh, atoms and neutrons do. The, you know, m- Remember, modern portfolio theory is drawn from the mechanical rules crowd, from the, the physics crowd. And there's been a lot of work done the last couple decades, and it's beginning to weigh, it's make its way into the marketplace that show, hey, people don't behave according to that set of rules, so we have to take that into account. And that's one of the ways that you could see your shares in Amazon or Tesla. You know, People, even though they may know that Tesla is not in a position to make a dividend, uh, to pay out a dividend, and Amazon chooses not to pay a dividend, uh, Berkshire Hathaway chooses not to pay a dividend, and your favorite biotech or, NAS- or social media company either can't or chooses not to pay a dividend. Nevertheless, they can have a role in a portfolio, but that role doesn't support your cash flow because they don't have any cash flow distributions, but it supports your, your, your psychic interest in the portfolio, your lottery ticket. In the, in the book, I refer to it as the lottery ticket. <laughs> yeah. part, That's the um, example that I remember. Yeah, this yeah. is your lottery and, ticket. And they're fun. Those lottery tickets are fun to get. They yeah, really and there's are. actually uh, uh, an academic literature as to why people who buy life insurance also buy lottery tickets because in theory, <laughs> the two the two entities, the, the two forms of behavior are diametrically opposed, but yet people do them all the time. They're, kind of, do, they're kind of complementary in a way, you know. They, they are two sides and of this. So, but what they represent is a real we call it kind of a fat tail of of returns. That is, you a very low probability of a very high return. Well, that's the exact opposite of mean variance optimization and. Yeah. Uh, uh, modern portfolio theory. And yet it exists. Yeah. It exists and it exists very fully throughout the investment spectrum. So modern portfolio theory just can't, a mean variance optimization framework just can't deal with lottery tickets. Uh, uh, and so it, it, that is a key flaw to it. And a, uh, whether it's a behavioral finance approach or a business uh, cash flow approach allows the investor to incorporate and feel good about and understand why they have their non-dividend paying security in there. I'm a little bit dismissive. I grant you in terms of the, the, um, 
calling it a, a, a lottery ticket approach. But the fact is, it's a perfectly reasonable psychological approach to investing. You have your assets, which generate the income, and then you have a, probably a smaller sleeve of assets, which which are your hope and lottery tickets assets. One of the re, one of the things I really like about this approach is that it segregates the two types of assets. In some ways, you'll feel better if you think of your investments this way, you'll feel better about your your dividend paying investments and the income streams there if you take the non-dividend paying stocks out because they're really volatile and you'll see how incredibly stable the, the uh, whether bonds or stocks or real estate that has rental stream, how very stable that is. If you put all the volatile assets together that don't have income streams, at least you know what you're getting. You can call it the lottery ticket bucket or you can call it whatever bucket you want, but at least you're not expecting income from it and you know it's going to bounce around a lot and it's segregated from the assets that don't bounce around a lot. So I think it's actually in some ways psychologically more healthy than having uh, all the stocks mixed in together, those that pay dividends and those that do not. Yeah, I think that makes a certain amount of sense. I like the lottery ticket example quite a bit. I think it's apt. You know, also I would say just gambling in general. Americans like to gamble uh, and everybody knows the house always wins. I don't think there's a person who gambles who doesn't know this, but you go anyway and, and there's just some deep, I don't know, psychological need to take those kinds of risks in the search of great reward. And I, I think I, you, what you say makes great sense. So pretending that that desire doesn't exist and sticking one's head in the ground and pretending that it doesn't yeah, exist. That, 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 that yeah, doesn't that's dumb. No. So that's rational actor theory and that's that's modern portfolio theory. There are no irrational people in modern portfolio theory. There are yeah. no irrational investors. And that just doesn't describe the real world as Harry Markowitz has described yeah. in a yeah. number of instances. Again, his <laughs> wisdom shines through. He, he was uh, very explicit in saying, hey, this is a rational actor exercise but I'm aware that it only gets you so far. And so, uh, but unfortunately, the rules are set up uh, that, uh, again, uh, lottery tickets don't play a role in the rules. And so you have this confusion between, you know, some, uh, some of these high-risk non-distributive companies, whether it was the tech bubble or social media companies now, uh, and, and what sober investment is supposed to be like. I'm not saying you get rid of all the unsober investment. I'm saying segregate them. Segregate it and segregate them. And then you yeah. just know what you're getting and you can enjoy the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. Some of your listeners, Marshall, including yourself, will yeah. be able to date that phrase. Uh, they'll be able to segregate that experience uh, and it won't get in the way of their retirement and paying the bills, which comes right. from the rest of the portfolio. It's funny you mention this because I know a couple of people. One in particular springs to mind. He's a guy who's a moderate income, pretty successful guy. He's got a lot of bills. Um, he's a teacher and he drives a BMW. And I'm like, why, why do you buy drive a BMW? I mean, I know, I know you well. And what, what is with the BMW? He goes, well, you know, that's my car and that's a special thing. <laughs> you know it just doesn't count in the balance sheet it's not on the balance sheet it's that's called just mental, a different thing yeah that's called mental accounting and and yeah, uh, the behavioral finance people have done a wonderful job over the last couple of decades just like that's a different thing you know he pays for everything he pays his mortgage he pays you know blah 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 but that that car that bmw is just really uh that is not um not something he can really afford if he wanted if he were the rational actor but he drives right. it and but, i think, and, he, I think and he, he likes and it <laughs> and in most other activities, your friend's probably reasonably rational. Oh, yeah. And, no, he is. And, he's very rational. Yeah. It's like I say, he's a public school teacher. I mean, this guy, you know, he goes to work every day and he does everything like he's supposed to do it, but he's got a BMW. <laughs> yeah. So, again, there there is no perfect uh, solution, one size fits all, and certainly not rational actor theory-based solution for everyone. And the, the shortcoming in – modern portfolio theory and how modern investment practice is that there's there's the assumption is again that everyone needs to behave the same way it, it's more likely to be uh, rational than irrational yeah. and that everyone has the same goals the, the, the utility curve has the same goals expectations uh and it's it's just not uh, it, it's all about the uh share prices of the securities not the actual businesses and right. again it's a pendulum metaphor some of this can stay a lot of could stay. But how about if the pendulum comes a little bit further back mm -hmm. into the middle, uh, a little bit closer to the middle, and we have a higher quotient of uh, basic business analysis rather than just share price analysis? Yeah. Okay. Two final – we've taken up a lot of your time, but two final questions for you. Did you send a copy of the book to Harry Markowitz? 
You know, uh, I I have not. Uh, I I should. I will speak to the publisher about that. He, Harry Markowitz it writes for the same publisher, and uh, I believe he's still working on something for them. And so, uh, perhaps want to leave him in peace and not uh, delay him uh, further. I, I wish Harry Markowitz well. I m- wish also one other person who did uh, pass away in 2009, Peter Bernstein. When I was writing this book, he comes out as a very very interesting character. He was a journalist and practitioner wrote a couple books about the emergence of modern portfolio theory in the in the 90s and i uh uh you know respectfully disagree with him uh he did pass on i'm I'm sorry to say but uh uh, I have not, I've not reached out to Harry Markowitz. I have reached out to a few of the other characters, mostly on email, Bill Sharp and Gene Fama, just to clarify, mm-hmm. uh, various, uh, uh, details of the, of the history. And generally they've been, uh, quite responsive. Mm-hmm. Okay. So final question, it's a traditional final question on the new books network. And that is, what are you working on now? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> officially, I am I'm not working on anything, but uh, I have two. Uh, two projects in mind, one of which is uh, not not even a remote extension of this, but one project that is an extension of this takes the same basic logic about an excessive quantification of human relationships and the need to dial that back after uh, 20th century in which that quantification of human relationships may have gone overboard and apply the same logic to the notion of trust. And that is where in the 20th century, um, we have gone from a society in which you might trust your neighbor, your, your, your local business person, um, uh, any number of people in your economic and, and personal orbit to uh, contractual relationships where the degree of trust in someone is minimal and the threat of litigation is, is maximum. And um, I wonder if the pendulum hasn't swung uh, too far in that direction. That is, we act based on whether we're about to get sued or not get sued, as opposed to uh, operating in a trust framework. A little bit more of the, you know, a little more community and a little less society might not be a bad mm-hmm. idea. And so, uh, kind of, uh, there was a, a, a Francis Fukuyama book about the history of trust relationships. Uh, written a couple decades ago where he he pointed out that uh, the uh, countries that uh, did well economically were able to develop scale and go beyond personal trust relationships into large-scale industry or um, commerce and because they were able to have legal relationships rather than personal relationships. That's undeniable. It's a, it's a very interesting book and uh, it's, 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 it's clearly undeniable. My... my point or question would be, uh, you know, 50 years or 30, 40 years later after that was written, whether um, it's, a t- again, gone too far in that direction and whether mm-hmm. the need to, uh, uh, whether we've gone too far in removing trust from our, our uh, business relationships. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's an idea. I'm not certain with, uh, whether it'll ever come to anything, but that's, that's what I'm working on. Okay, that's very good. Well, uh, Dan, let me say thank you very much for writing the book and are appearing on the New Books Network today. Thank you very much, Marshall. Let me tell everybody who listens to this podcast and to the New Books Network in general, thank you very much for listening to us. We've been talking with Daniel Paris today about his book, Getting Back to Business, Why Modern Portfolio Theory Fails Investors and How You Can Bring Common Sense to Your Portfolio. I hope that all of you are well, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <music>